Well, if you have a Bible, I invite you to open with me to John chapter 20, verses 24 to 29. John uh, 20, 24 through 29. If you don't have a Bible, there's one provided for you in the back of the pew there in front of you. You'll find this on either page 769 or 808, uh, depending on which printing of that you have. And we'll, we'll read that in a moment, and I'll tell you it's our custom uh, when we read to, to stand while the Scripture's read, just with sort of a reverent attentiveness to what the Lord has to say to us, and uh, so you'll know that that's coming. But the resurrection of Jesus is the central doctrine of the Christian faith. Um, if it didn't happen, there would be nothing really distinctive about us. In fact, it, the Apostle Paul says if it didn't happen, we would be among all men the most pitiable. If it didn't happen, we'd be better off out in a boat today instead of in here gathered for worship. So we just put all our cards on the table, as it were. We are all in for the resurrection. And, and if we've grown up in or around the church, you, you know, we may lose sight of or forget how incredulous a claim that is. How, how really extraordinary a claim it is. In fact, uh, to many, it's downright absurd to suggest that somebody who is dead would be undead. That that is, to, to people who don't believe, absurd. And that's not true just for modern man, by the way. It's not like just we, we reached a point in history where we became smarter than everybody else who had ever lived in history. No, it was absurd to the people living in the first century too. In fact, the Apostle Paul, when he preached in Athens, which is probably the intellectual and cultural center of his day, when he preached the resurrection, it says some mocked him, even then. And so for, for rationally minded people, the claim that Jesus rose from the dead presents a major obstacle to belief. It just does. And the Gospel of John tells us about one such person who initially refused to believe that Jesus had risen from the tomb. But then he became, it was convinced, he, then he became convinced that it was true uh, that he did. And so I've titled this message, A Rational Skeptic Changes His Mind. A Rational Skeptic Changes His Mind. I've, I've geared this for those who might be here today visiting, and, and maybe that's you. Um, if you're a thinker, I respect that. That's kind of how I'm wired to. And a skeptical because you're a thinker, I get it, okay? So, so geared for the person who might be here that fits that description or people that you know who aren't here, um, but you know that's kind of how they're wired to. So it's from John chapter 20, verses 24 through 29. So let's look there together now. If you're able, I'm gonna ask you to stand and honor of the reading of the scriptures. Beginning in verse 24, hear the word of the Lord. Now Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hand in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. 
Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put your hand, put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Let's pray together. Well, Lord, we are so thankful as always for the scriptures, Lord, that you have spoken to us. And we open them with the expectation you have something to say to us this morning, Lord. We are gathered to meet with you. Realizing there are some gathered here today because they've come with family or friends, maybe even just to be polite. But Lord, we're here with the expectation that you have something to say when the scriptures are opened. And so we pray that you would speak, O oh Lord, your word by your spirit through your servant to your people for your glory. Lord, would you move me out of the way as always and use my mouth as just an instrument to speak what we need to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated. Well, earlier in this chapter, if we were to back up and read beginning in the, at the beginning of chapter 20, uh, we would read that Mary Magdalene had gone on the first day of the week and, and found the tomb where Jesus had been laid empty. And so she went and told Peter and presumably John, it just says that the disciple whom Jesus loved, most scholars would say he's referring to himself there <clears throat> without naming himself. But then Peter and John ran to the tomb and found also that the body of Jesus was gone. And so they went back home. Mary Magdalene uh, hung around and Jesus actually appeared to her. She thought at first that it was the gardener, didn't recognize him. And then he spoke to her. She realized who it was. And that evening, the disciples were locked away in a room together and Jesus appeared to them and showed them his hands and side as it just said that he did for Thomas. But when they told Thomas about it, he didn't believe them. And so that's kind of what leads up to this point. Now, we, don't, we are not told much about Thomas. Uh, most of the time that he's mentioned in the New Testament, he's just named on a list of other disciples. But there are actually two places where he's quoted that give us a little bit of insight, perhaps, um, that, that's helpful for us as we come to this passage that makes him most famous for us or infamous among Christians. In John um, eleven sixteen, Jesus is um, heading toward Jerusalem. He's actually getting ready to go to Lazarus, who will be raised from the dead there. But there are plots already forming um, to, to kill Jesus. And so um, he says, I go now to Lazarus. And Thomas says, let us also go that we may die with him. And then the other time he's quoted is in John 14, 5. You, you may remember John 14, 6 is where Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Well, John 14, 5, where Jesus has just, just said, um, you know where I'm going, you know the way. And Thomas said, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? So Thomas is like that, 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 that student that like Jesus is, 
is speaking and he just raises it. Wait, 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 I don't, I don't get it. What? I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, where are you going? Uh, we don't know the way. And, and Jesus says, I am the way. Now, that, that, again, those are really just little snippets, but it perhaps suggests two things about Thomas. Number one, that he is genuinely committed to following Jesus. I mean, there's no indication that when he says, let's go die with him, that he means anything less than let's go die with him. Now, of course, Thomas, like all the rest of the disciples, would actually scatter when trouble hit, you know. But, but part of the thing is, he's actually following a different Messiah. He, he, he's thinking Jesus is this political, military kind of deliverer for the, the, the Jewish people from Roman rule. And um, his, he's looking through a different lens, right? He's looking through the wrong lens of who Jesus is. And that gets really turned upside down when Jesus ends up crucified. But he, he's committed. He really is committed to following Jesus to the death. It also suggests, that second quote, that you know, he doesn't understand everything, but he wants to. He doesn't understand everything, but he wants to. He's asking Jesus, no, wait, wait, I don't, where are you going? We don't know the way. And so that makes it maybe a, 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 somebody committed to Jesus, but looking through the wrong lens or, or, or committed to his passions, perhaps. Looking through the wrong lens, not understanding everything, but wanting to understand everything, maybe makes it a little less surprising that here at the end of chapter 20, we find him in the role of a rational skeptic. And we see in this little encounter uh, a reasonable doubt. We see a gracious response, which leads to a changed mind. We see how a reasonable doubt meets with a gracious response and leads to a changed mind. Let's look first at the reasonable doubt. Thomas says there in uh, verse 25, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Now, Thomas gets kind of a bad rap for this, doesn't he? This is like, this is what you knew about Thomas. If, 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 you, if Christians know of Thomas, this is what we know about him, right? I think he gets a bad rap for it. Christians, we kind of raise our noses at Thomas, you know, and scoff at him. We even have a special name for him, and it is Doubting Thomas, of course. But when you consider the circumstances, even just briefly, it's a very reasonable doubt. If we were all followers of Jesus alive at that time, some of us would have the same response. I mean, imagine if you saw on Facebook that some women had gone to the Cathedral of Notre Dame this morning and found it totally restored as if it had never been on fire. In fact, more glorious than it was even two weeks ago. Maybe there's even a photo on the post. Well, probably you would not just post it. You would not just share that post and say, praise the Lord, it's a miracle. Hopefully, like you wouldn't, you wouldn't share that, right? <laughs> because chances are that didn't happen. Chances are that didn't happen. And you would want some more information before you believed it and before you told other people to believe it. Because burned buildings don't just, uh, just suddenly appear unburned again. That doesn't happen. 
That's an that would be an extraordinary claim and you would need some more evidence in order to believe that. We might look to see uh, what the international news services were reporting. Is there any live video coverage, maybe from multiple sources? What are the people who live in Paris saying about the events? In other words, we would want to poke at that a little bit. Most likely, you wouldn't just assume it was true. In fact, you would probably assume it's not true until you had reason to change your mind. You'd start at no and seek reasons to move to yes. And, that, and it would be perfectly reasonable for you to do so, given such an extraordinary claim. Well, that, that's basically the position Thomas takes. He watched him get crucified. I mean, as New Testament scholar N.T. Wright says that the, the, the most obvious evidence that somebody is not the Messiah would have been that he was killed by the Romans. In other words, that the expectation that all of them had of the Messiah was that he would come and deliver them from the Romans. The very fact that he was executed by the Romans would just completely turn upside down their understanding of, of who Jesus is and what just happened. And this is where Thomas is. The other disciples are making an extraordinary claim. As I said, dead people don't just become undead. Even though Jesus had just raised Lazarus, Lazarus not too long before. But Thomas wasn't going to assume it, it was, or he, rather he was going to assume it wasn't true until he had reasons to believe it was. He had a reasonable doubt. And so part of the point here is to say, believing the claims of Christianity does not require somebody to suspend rationality in order to do so. It just doesn't. It's a reasonable faith. And here you have a rational, reasonable kind of guy who wasn't going to believe. There was certain evidence he would have to see in order to believe he happened to see it. But it also doesn't mean, by the way, faith doesn't mean believing something without any evidence. And sometimes that's the way faith is defined by skeptics. The faith is believing something in the absence of evidence. It doesn't mean there's not any evidence. It might mean the evidence is incomplete. But it's perfectly reasonable to doubt and to question. And we ought to uh, permit that of one another as Jesus did. And then following that, we see from Jesus a gracious response to this firm doubt on Thomas's part. It's a really gracious response. Because look at verse 27. Jesus, then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Jesus came to Thomas and showed him precisely what he needed to see in order to believe. Has that ever struck you before? How gracious that was on Jesus' part. Because it seems clear, Jesus wants him to believe. He says, do not disbelieve, but believe. 
Now, we, we speak of Thomas in somewhat of a belittling way, I think, a little bit condescending as we talk about his doubt and so forth. And the way we talk about him and the way we talk about faith sometimes, we, we, we might all, almost expect that Jesus would have said, oh, ye of little faith, you ask for a sign, but I'm not gonna show you a sign. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't do that at all. He says, look touch, believe. Now there are people you remember for whom Jesus, to whom Jesus did say, you asked for a sign, but I'm not going to show you a sign. Because there were people Jesus knew, they weren't asking in order to believe. They were asking in order to trap him into some other misstatement or whatever they could accuse him of. They were, they were determined not to believe. Jesus had a wonderful way of not answering rhetorical questions. He was really crafty at that. But, but to Jesus, I mean, to Thomas, he just says, look, touch, and believe. And as followers of Jesus, we, we ought to approach doubters and questioners and skeptics with that sort of graciousness. Now, we don't have all the answers like Jesus had all the answers, you may feel like you don't have any of the answers, really. Um, but we can still approach them with a graciousness like, like Jesus did. As if they just need more evidence to believe. I know I've always felt like um, a really good salesperson was so committed to what, I mean, like so genuinely committed to what they sell. They feel like there's no way you could say no. And if you said no, it just means you need more information. Maybe you've met somebody like that because you can't possibly mean no. You just need to know more about it. If you knew more, if you knew what I knew, you would say yes. And so we can, we can approach people with a graciousness like that, assuming um, they just need more evidence in order to believe. Of course, we have no way of knowing if that's actually true. We don't, we don't know what the obstacles are to somebody, somebody believing uh, but we can see reasonable doubt and offer a gracious response to it. Because in the case of Thomas and Jesus, that led to his changed mind. Thomas simply responds to Jesus in verse 28, my Lord and my God. Now, that's a changed mind, isn't it? He went from never believing to his whole understanding of what the Messiah was supposed to be, to calling him my Lord and my God. And we might mark as a footnote here, Thomas, the, the, the fact that Thomas called Jesus God and Jesus doesn't correct him. Um, so anytime you see in the Bible an angel, somebody bows down to an angel, the angel basically says, get up, don't worship me. I'm not God. But Jesus doesn't do that. He actually receives the worship. And again, that's a little bit parenthetical. Um, but it's, it's sort of one of the places we look uh, in the New Testament to see Jesus regarding himself um, as deity. But Thomas changes his mind on a dime. He had basically said, I need to see Jesus myself. I need to see him up close if I'm gonna believe. And he was presented with the evidence that he required and he changed his mind. And, and there are, you know, there are many people like Thomas who don't believe because they have reasonable doubts that need to be removed 
before they'll change their minds. In other words, people who doubt and question aren't just enemies. Uh, They have reasonable doubts. Those doubts need to be removed before they'll change their minds. But if those doubts are removed, if their questions are answered, if they have justification to believe that Jesus really was or is who he says he is, they'll believe. Now, on the other hand, there are those who express doubts and demand evidence, but have no intention of changing their minds. Again, this is kind of, Jesus encountered people like this too. You know, there, there are people, this would be an example. You know, there are people who will say things like, you know, the only way we could know for that for sure is if there were empirical scientific evidence. And so then somebody begins to offer some scientific, you know, empirical evidence that implies uh, that the Bible's true, that Jesus is who he says he is. And then they respond, uh, well, science only deals with the natural world. Science, by definition, can't uh, imply something that's supernatural. That's outside the realm of science. And see, it leaves you going, I thought you just said scientific evidence is the only evidence you would accept. And so now you're telling me the only evidence you would accept is evidence that you will not accept. You see, but, but uh, so there are people like that. In other words, they, they don't have any intention of believing. They are set on disbelieving. And that's a, that's a you don't know necessarily up front. And so the right, the right approach is graciousness, right? Like Jesus, uh, assuming there's a real open-mindedness. Mo- most people are not like what I just described. And we ought not to assume that. Rational people have reasonable doubts. They'll change their mind if the evidence points them in a different direction. And it's helpful, as I said, if it's presented in a gracious way. Well, two things need to be said in response to all this. Uh, And one is that people don't disbelieve only because of intellectual reasons. Now, I've just said uh, people some rationally minded, skeptical people need more evidence in order to believe. It needs to make sense. That's true for them. But people don't disbelieve only for intellectual reasons. There are spiritual or moral obstacles there too, or hindrances, a lot of times that people aren't even mindful of. But simply put, people don't believe in God because there is something in the human heart that doesn't like like the implications of believing in God. We don't like the idea that our lives would be ordered or regulated or bound by anybody outside of ourselves. And in fact, the, the, the Apostle Paul, in, in his letter to the Christians living in Rome, he said that people have a sense that there is a God, but they suppress that truth. They suppress the truth because they don't, they don't want to believe it. They don't want it to be true. And the significance of that this morning is primarily to say people are not always as rational as they think they are. People are not, I mean, even rational people who really are smart, intellectual, logical people, that, that, that people are not altogether as rational as they think they are sometimes. So there may be another hurdle. And again, this may be true for somebody here even this morning. You think of yourself as kind of a rational skeptic, but there may be actually other hurdles to your belief 
things that sort of keep you in disbelief, things that would keep you from pursuing a real open rational inquiry about Jesus. So that's number one. Number two, there is good evidence that Jesus really was raised from the dead. There's, there's evidence of that. This is that, that we are not um, asked to believe as Christians just sort of accept on blind faith, even though some do. And it's not belief without any evidence. Um, there's actually lots of good evidence that Jesus really was raised from the dead. And there's really not time to consider much of that at all this morning. And that really wasn't the thrust of my message. I didn't really sort of uh, package it that way, uh, but really wanted to, to sort of examine uh, and validate the uh, rationality and doubt that's sort of inherent in the minds of people. And that, and that Christianity will stand the test. If you want to poke at it, it'll stand up. It's not a house of cards that's just going to fall if you blow. And, so, you know, sort of, and the whole thing's going to fall down. There are people who think that sometimes. You just assume that, um, that you know, Christians have never really thought about this and they'll bring up one point and then the whole thing will collapse. It's not so. It'll stand up the test. <laughs> you poke at it and you blow on it. Um, it's true. Um, but I'll just point to, to two uh, sort of evidences that, that would be worth exploring. It, it would be worth your going down the road and seeing what you find. Earlier in this chapter, in chapter 20, we see an empty tomb and eyewitnesses. Okay, an empty tomb and eyewitnesses. And there's, there's, again, a lot that can be said about both of those things, but actually together, see, any, either one of those independently could be easily refuted, right? So if people said, we went and we found the tomb empty, well, the response would have been, somebody sold the body. And, and that would have been hard, whether it was true or not, it would have been hard to argue with. That would have been probably the most reasonable conclusion. Somebody stole the body. But it, if they had only seen Jesus, if they only kind of had eyewitness, seen appearances of Jesus, somebody could have said, well, look at the tomb, the stone's still in front of it, sealed up. Let's roll the stone away. Look, there are the bones of his body. It'd be easy to refute. An empty tomb and eyewitness accounts together become actually powerful um, explanation historically for why did the church explode the way that it did? Because this is also an undeniable reality that there is a church that didn't exist and then suddenly it did in thousands and not because they conquered territory by the sword. In fact, they spread even under the power of the sword, under the threat of the sword, under persecution of the sword, under ridicule and mockery and all kinds of reasons why not to go on telling that story. But it happened anyway. And, and, and so the truth is that the best explanation just from doing good history the best explanation of uh, the, the, the start of the church um, on the claims that they made, the, the, 
The resurrection was the central teaching of the church from the very beginning. It wasn't a myth that emerged over decades, like that they didn't believe that at first, and then a hundred years later, this resurrection thing started happening. No. The Apostle Paul, who was basically a religious terrorist, chasing down Christians, dragging them off to, to trial and persecution and even death, the, just a few years after the resurrection, he himself has an encounter with the risen Jesus, becomes a Christian himself and goes all over the world telling other people about it. Such that he's on his second trip around 15 to 20 years after Jesus was crucified. Now, I don't know if you're tracking with me there, but in other words, in a very short period of time, this central claim of the resurrection of Jesus has been, has made its way around the known world a couple of times. And he actually writes a letter to the Thessalonians about 16 or 17 years after the resurrection. He writes a letter to the uh, Corinthians about 20 years after the resurrection, both of which have really overt statements about the resurrection. And so the, the point just being, you would, you would have to explore that and say, what is the most reasonable explanation of that? Because it's not that they made it up. It's not that they maintained a lie and died for it. It's not that um, it's a myth that emerged over some number of decades. There has to be some other explanation for it. I would suggest to you the best explanation is that it actually happened. That Jesus actually rose from the dead. Now that's what I've just shared is sort of like drinking out of a fire hose and it's a little bit more than your mind can get around. The, the point is just to say, to give you a taste of, uh, you, might not, you might not change your mind like Thomas did. Okay, but, but there is evidence there to explore and to consider rationally. And I would encourage you to do so. Um, it, it, will, it will pass muster. The, 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 the house does not fall down just because you push at it with questions and doubts. So examine the evidence with an open mind, see where it leads you. If you're already a believer, uh, I would just encourage us to um, graciously encourage others to pursue that same inquiry. Ask questions, read some about it, see where it leads you. It's reasonable to question and doubt, but by the grace of God, minds can be changed. Well, let's pray together. Well, Father, we, we do praise you. We praise you, Lord, those, those who follow Jesus Christ. Uh, we do believe that he did not stay dead, but that he secured victory over death itself and that we now live spiritually in him, that we uh, who were dead ourselves in our trespasses and sins have been made alive together with Christ and spiritually raised up with him and seated in heavenly places as a testimony of your grace that has saved us, that pursued us when we were far off and brought us near, made us joint heirs and citizens when we were aliens 
and strangers. So Lord, those of us who have that testimony, we praise you today on this glorious day of resurrection. Lord, I just pray um, that you would lead some others on a journey. Help us even as in our encounters with, uh, with other people who are maybe skeptical, um, just to be gracious and encourage an open-mindedness, conversations about that, Lord, that you would lead people to the truth, that you would be worshiped in all the earth. In Jesus' name, amen.